The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. Uh, this week, I'm talking to Daniel Markham. Daniel, do you want to say hello? Remind people who you are. Howdy, howdy, ho. Daniel Markham here. This is my second appearance on the Clean Coders podcast, and I hope to do as bad or as good as I did last time. <laughs> there we go. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out ray gun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at cleancoderspodcast.com slash Raygun. Hoping to at least maintain the bar, huh? Well, yeah, I figure, you know, you got to start off really bad and then no matter what you do after that, it's an improvement relatively. Yeah, I think somebody... Uh, has put that as like the what the blessing of low expectations is that you always exceed them <laughs> this this is beginning uh, to run, remind me of my dating life <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i've really enjoyed our conversations and last time we talked about naming things which it's interesting because it's something that you don't really think about until it's like oh yeah i've named some stuff some pretty terrible <laughs> terrible names right just doesn't quite connect with okay this is what it does yeah well, likewise, we're gonna kind of one of these 120 character variable names that this was the time i went to the store and bought the pack of bubba <laughs> oh i hate those i i had a co-worker that i mean that that was his thing right he just described what the whole thing was and it was two sentences and lots of underscores and anyway but yeah so we're we're going to be talking a little bit more about language and logic and you said something about like you used the term wit with something i i don't know it was a term that i didn't know and i was like oh something i don't know let's let's dive into that so wittgenstein yeah yeah he's a famous german dude uh about a hundred years ago and uh he was born rich didn't need to do anything and so he gave up all his money went into philosophy <laughs> i guess philosophy was like the computer science of 1900 or something mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, what he did after he spent, uh, I guess, 10, 15 years doing his, his thesis, he also fought in World War I. He went to live in a cabin, by the way. He comes back after 15 years and he says, you know, I've solved the problem of philosophy. And he presented oh, his thesis and dang, nobody could find any holes in it. So I, I would, do you know what his, would you like me to tell you what his solution was? Yeah, that'd be great. Because this re relates directly to programming. Wittgenstein said, look, the what you guys have been doing for the last 2,000 years is you've been treating conceptual ideas as if they were algebraic ideas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, X plus Y equals 15 is an algebraic statement that you can solve for X and Y and make a nice little line. Um, 
but uh, you know, truth is beauty is not so much that. And people have tried to reason about, you know, the truth is beauty statement by saying truth is like this is something else is like that. And uh, actually his uh, mentor, Russell, Bertrand Russell, ended up inventing predicate calculus where we have all of these sort of logic statements and set theory to describe how things relate. And Wilkinson was saying, look, most things are not algebraic. And so you guys inventing this more and more microscopic logical way of talking about conceptual ideas are just for wasting your time. And he was right. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I don't think it was a useless endeavor. I think philosophy is probably really good to, to ask questions to clarify problems. I tell people that programming is applied philosophy. And by that, I mean, we meet people, we kind of shoot the shit with them a little bit, maybe we'll go out and have a couple beers, we're about their problem. Uh -huh. And through that sort of shooting the shit, asking questions back and forth process, hopefully we begin a process where we kick out this cool formal system that we can use to explore the universe around us, which is a computer program. Right. Makes sense. So how do we talk about these conceptual things? Because yeah, a lot of the programming ideas, I mean, even the stand-ins for like actual definable physical things, when we put the stand-ins into our programs, it still becomes a conceptual idea, right? Yes. I think that what we deal with as programmers is uh, our users and our product owners give us conceptual ideas all the time. You know, one, uh -huh. Better, faster, you know, more lean or whatever. And we convert those ideas into some sort of rock solid set of logic, hopefully rock solid. Right. And so we do that in various ways. We can do that using functional programming, OO programming. Mm -hmm. All of those ways are fine. But we have to remember that our idea of, you know, a customer, customer account in the program is always going to be different than what the guy's saying. Yeah, this is something that I ran into when I was freelancing a few years ago. They would give me a specification for something that they wanted. And then I would go build it and then I would bring it back. And they never knew if that was what they wanted until they saw it. Right. 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 It's not only that. And we talk, of course, we've, we've been sort of solving this thing. The second book covers quite a bit. However, we haven't realized it goes back to Wittgenstein is that thing, right? So we've talked about iterative development, spiral development, agile, XP, all of these things. Make a quick prototype, show it to the user, have them use it. And then you get a refined idea of what they want. Mm -hmm. I think that what we've done as good technical folks is we've sort of assumed there is a perfect idea of a customer or customer account or whatever, and that mm -hmm. we're going through this process just to find it. And what we're really doing is sort of creating a sort of new intermediate language between us and the customer that defines right. customer based on this formal system we've created for them. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. What's interesting too, though, is that to that concept of the perfect customer or user or whatever, you know, entity within our system, it's different for, from system to system. And I think a lot of times, we try to abstract it to the most common things and then assume that that's going to be the perfect implementation for our thing. Yeah, it, it never quite works out that way. And I think if you once you understand the fact that we're programmers tempted to reason conceptually about things that are just pieces of logic in our code, mm -hmm. that's where a whole bunch of crap kind of comes into the system that doesn't need to be there. And that's, that's also, by the way, why the best way to read a system is to go through the tests because the tests actually right. prove out the system using the language of the system, right? Right. So when we start abstracting, what happens is we think along the ways, we, along the lines that we would abstract. So if I had a, a name or a class named conductor and we were doing some things with a conductor, you may think, oh, wow, I want to actually abstract that up into semiconductor, conductor, and the various forms of electronics. Whereas I may have meant it like conductor of a train and you could have abstracted like conductor, fire engine driver, you know. Right. But a third person may mean conductor, in terms of an orchestra member. And mm -hmm. so there's, it's not that any one of those three are correct or incorrect. 
it's that each one of us walk in with a different kind of idea of what conductor might mean. Right. And the tests and the conversations back and forth that actually show what a conductor is. So we're, we're always striving toward tests. Uh, one of the things, if you want to like learn good, learn learn you some good programming in five seconds, is when, <laughs> whenever you're talking to somebody that wants something, how can we test this? Right. And just driving down that question will get you wherever you need to go. Yeah, that makes sense. So is test really the answer then to refining this? I believe so. Um, both at the can I make the user happy level and do mm -hmm. I understand what the code actually does level? Both of those, the, the only way you're going to sort of get to some sort of firm agreed upon meaning is some sort of double entry cross check system. But that doesn't mitigate necessarily the trial and error we're going to go through in order to get to what we want, right? Exactly. The really cool part, or really frustrating part, depending on how you look at it, is that <laughs> yeah, because those three programmers had that different idea of conductor. Yeah, pardon my evil laugh. No, no, no. no. So I, I'm kind of nerding out here. Because all those three yeah. programmers had a different idea of conductor, you, you begin to realize that every freaking body that walks through the, the team room door is going to have a different idea. Right. And so you're really not trying to understand what the product owner wants. I know that we say that you are. You're not trying to understand what the customer... No, that's not at all what you're trying to do. What you're trying to do is come to some sort of new language that you can talk to the, the guy about the problem. And every time you introduce a new person to your small social group, you have to go through that process again. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, we it, it is an issue and it's not that you can ever make it go away. I think what tests do is drive out the problems earlier. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, essentially what you're doing is you're encoding your assumptions, right? And then you're applying it to the system to make sure that they match. That's correct. What you, um, <clears throat> in a different way of putting this is you're actually codifying the relationship between the, the items you're concerned about by creating either a user interface version of that, or maybe they look at a database table or something. Mm -hmm. but you're, you're having to say, hey, here's blah, 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 blah. Is this the parent of that? Or these have three right. more of those? Mm -hmm. And what, what you'll find every time is that they'll go, oh, there's actually two or three answers to this question or whatever. And then you say, okay, we actually need to decide on a answer for this problem for this team. And then you know you're actually doing your work instead of just taking an order like you at McDonald's or something. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. So are there better techniques for doing this other than just kind of blind trial and error for, for narrowing down this language? There are, and uh, they're all fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, the, the thing is, is that we do this when we're two years old. You know, you say you have uh -huh. a cup of water and your mother says you can't have a cup. And you say, why? And she says, because you just had supper. And you say, why? Uh, this isn't fun for your mom, but it's a hoot for you when you're two years old. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so we're always creating languages between the two of us, whenever two of us interact. And the cool thing is you could go bowling, you could do role playing, you could play Parcheesi. Uh, whenever we interact, we're going to be creating a new language. The question is, are we creating a new language around the problem we need to solve? And, and, the, and you don't want, see, I think the, um, the thing, the mis common mistake here is to think you're trying to solve the problem of the terms ahead of time. Uh -huh. but, but because nobody in the room knows exactly how to how you're going to end up defining the problem, you have to have kind of a wide-ranging relationship amongst one another. You know, the best teams in the world are the teams where everybody's sitting back eating a hoagie or a salad or something, and somebody goes, hey, Joe, maybe we should be doing blah, blah, blah instead of this other thing. And everybody kind of stops eating and goes, holy fuck, he's right. We should be doing this the complete other way. <laughs> yeah. And what you've, yeah. what you've done there is you've relaxed to the point where people can process all this stuff subconsciously and not worry about uh -huh. the right thing to say or anything. And and I like that too, because 
it seems like, at least on the teams that I've been on that really work, that's how a lot of the breakthroughs came in, right? Is somebody, or maybe somebody shows up, you know, in the morning and goes, you know, I just couldn't put this down mentally last night. And I've completely rethought the way we're doing the thing. Or, yeah, you know, everybody's just kind of sitting around and you're, you're talking about football. And then somebody goes, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, we know this intuitively, both as children learning languages. We know how to do rubber duck debugging, where you stick mm-hmm. a rubber duck on top of the monitor, explain it to it. Uh, a lot of people will get mad at consultants coming in from the outside because they'll say we ask stupid questions or repeat the obvious. Well, you know. You can do a whole freaking lot of stuff just by asking dumb questions until people explain to you the reason why something is one way or another. And then you're, I guess, in that case, you're the rubber duck. And then they right. can figure out what they're doing <laughs> wrong. You can help in that fashion. Yeah. Well, the other end of that, though, is that for the vast majority of the programming that I've done, I'm programming for another domain, right? So my domain expertise is software, writing software. And so, like, I just took a job where we're, we're doing, like, financial stuff, right? And I don't speak the financial jargon that they're dealing with, right? I don't speak the other jargon around some of the information we're collecting. And so I have to learn that. And so, yeah, I may be asking a really, really basic question, but it's because I'm coming from a limited set of knowledge to begin with. And it, it's a good thing to realize that you're, you have cross domains like this. I think thing that kills you every time. First of all, there is no red light that goes off when you fail to communicate properly. You know, oh, wouldn't that compi- be nice? Yeah, compiler crashes. <laughs> you know, your your program crashes. You know, yeah. you guys aren't talking or talking the right way. You don't know. So the the way you usually fail here is one or actually both sides assume things that another person knows that they actually don't. And so yeah. what, what I've had to do over and over again, no matter what the domain is, you'll ask a question, they'll give you an answer, and then you have to go, wait a minute, do you mean squirrel like the thing that lives in the tree? They'll go, oh, no, no, squirrel's actually this button we keep over here in the closet. We put, like, okay, fine, this is not the squirrel <laughs> I was thinking of. And it's funny because the things that you think are so obvious to a programmer or obvious in the problem domain are the things yeah. that are, always have some sort of little secret meaning that you never heard about. Yep, absolutely. Well, and that's another thing that I keep running into with this in in this particular situation with this job is that we have somebody that's been working on this app in one way or another for the last like five years, right? And so a lot of times what winds up happening is we'll get in, I'll ask all my clarifying questions and he'll ask all of his and half the stuff he's asking about, I don't even get. Yeah, it's it's uh, one of the, you're talking about some of the techniques to use and I, I sort of gave you the broad answer, go bowling. And that's, that's uh-huh. a true answer. Uh, if you would like to start narrowing it down some, is find common interests that you're both familiar yeah. with and start using the, me- the metaphor technique. Oh, well, oh you yeah. Like Star- you like Star Trek too. Well, this thing is just like the library computer that takes takes, except for whatever. And people mm-hmm. naturally learn by taking existing models and adding a small bit to it. Cloud computing has changed the way we live, do business, and stay connected. With everyone using the same cloud platforms, winning and losing comes down to having the best talent to build products better and faster. So whether you're an aspiring innovator looking to level up or a business harnessing the transformative power of the cloud, tech skills and cloud certifications have never been more important. Cloud Academy has thousands of video courses, learning paths, practical hands-on labs, and real-world cloud environments and tools designed to help teams assess, build, and validate critical cloud skills. More importantly, Cloud Academy stays agile, challenging you with new content, labs, and tons of features that ensure your skills stay relevant and everyone can level up. 
They cover everything from major certifications to DevOps, security to programming languages. Cloud Academy is the cloud training platform of choice for Fortune 500 companies and thousands of tech professionals around the world. Don't just take their word for it. Check out the reviews on G2 and get started now at cloudacademy.com. For a limited time, our listeners can lock in a 50% off the monthly price for life. Just use the coupon code CODERS when checking out. It's a great way to pursue certifications or just cloud build expertise during this crazy time. Again, go to cloudacademy.com and use the coupon code CODERS to lock in 50% off the monthly price. Well, it's interesting there too, because with like the podcast, for example, one of the things that I just drive home, because I've helped a number of people start podcasts and and learn how to communicate over them. And I'm like, tell stories, tell stories, tell stories. And that's that's the same deal, right? Is that, yeah, then you're tying into a common story. You're tying into that common narrative that you have and all of the context that goes with it. It also makes it so that it's more relatable. So you can look at it and you can see yourself as, as a part of it. It is, I think, showing enthusiasm is a big part as well, because you should be, if you're communicating to folks, it should be about something that you care about. Yeah. So do you have an example of somewhere where you've had a breakthrough like this, where, you know, you're you're building this common language and, and you know, something clicked? Yeah, I, I do. It's, it's a funny story. So um, I'm working with a super user group. Gosh, I think it's 20 people we flew in from all over the world. And we're specking out this new system. It's supposed to be $50, $60 million, replace 30 or 40 existing systems in a place. And uh, as you can imagine, 30, 40 existing systems do a lot of stuff. So that's why we had to bring the the users in. So somebody had to get their head around just what the pieces are, how are we going to scope this, how are we going to, that was my job. And so we set them all in a room and uh, you, you would, I think the naive way of doing this would involve sort of some process or modeling tools or whatever, and you do blah, blah, blah. So we did not do that. Uh, And they did not want to do that. So I just kind of went along with them. Instead, we just sat in a large room and they all stared at me quite intently. (laughs) (laughs) And and what I did was just start talking. I'm like, okay, guys, what's the nature of the business? What do you do? And they started describing it to me. And as they described it to me, I would jot things down the flip chart. Well, after about an hour or two, this I started, I had like seven or eight boxes and I'm a very poor uh, drawer. So I got my UML modeling tool and I started drawing it up in UML because, mm-hmm. hey, easy. The other anti-pattern here would be for me to send them back somewhere while I went and made the model into sort of this you know, FM radio diagram or something. Right. Uh, but no, what I insisted on doing was that we're all actually working on this model together as a way of understanding how big the problem is. And so we we actually started with an object model or a class model. And as they gave me behaviors, I did the same thing. I put behaviors on a flip chart. And then mm-hmm. as they got more involved, I made uh, sequence uh, diagrams out of them or either that or, uh, activity diagrams. And I would just sketch out enough detail in the diagram tool I was using so that we could talk about meaning and words. Right. And, and this went on for a couple of weeks or so. The whole project was maybe six weeks. But around the two to three week point, I had a UML diagram with, I don't know, 20, 25 classes on it. I had uh, maybe 18 or 20 activities. It, it's, it was starting to feel as if you know, we were doing and almost done with what we needed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and mind you that I can't imagine anybody else doing this that they think they would be done. But this was, to a lot of people, this would have been like a lot of half-assed stuff. But we agreed on a whole bunch of stuff doing this work. And that was the right word. So yep. we're about, I don't know, 15 or, or 20 cloud. I'm feeling like it's about 80% done. And I realized that there's these three or four concepts we're talking about that's actually just one concept that has a mm-hmm. has a term to it that we've never mentioned before, but it's it's an English term that it means the same thing. We've just 
we've described doing the same process three or four different ways and use different nouns and flowcharts. But by looking at what they do, oh my God, this is actually one thing instead of four. And so I came in the next day and I erased everything we done and I started over with it. <laughs> and, and they looked at me as if I had lost my mind. Uh, but by doing it that one way, we substituted these complex ideas with one idea. We decreased our number of behaviors. We had to map from like right. 18 out of 12. The entire language of the problem became much simpler. And because our language became much simpler and we agreed on the language, that made we saved millions of dollars just in that one move. Oh yeah, I'm sure. And then there, of course, there's a whole thing on how you take those tools and make out the release plans and project charters and all that stuff. But and that's affinity mapping and who who uh-huh. a bunch of fun. But the, the point being is that you can't be afraid to throw away any sort of diagram you have or any sort of work you've done right. if you've made progress in language. Absolutely. Which is, one, which is one of the reasons you shouldn't do a lot of stupid paperwork because the more energy you put into diagrams and paperwork the less you're want, you're going to be willing to do that. And, and it's interesting too, because I mean, it sounds like you drilled in on a whole bunch of specific terms that had meaning, but it also feels like you made progress on kind of the big picture, right? So the overarching con, uh, concepts, the overarching themes and processes or stories and things like that. And that's just as important, right? Because then you know where all the pieces fit. So for drilling down to specific terms, I think we've talked a bit about that, but how do you create that greater context? Is it just a matter of getting the smaller terms together or is it is there more to it, right? Well, from an uh, architectural standpoint, what we want to do is we actually sort of use abstraction as a tool for agreement. Mm-hmm. When you're talking to a lot, we I think the, uh, the vice president thought this was going to be a, quite a Donnybrook, like a huge fight between users because, you know, lots of people from all the world, different interests. And we actually didn't have any of that. Uh, And the reason we didn't was whenever we had disagreement, I just pulled the abstraction layer up another level Uh because, you know, language is infinitely abstractable. And we just pulled it up to the point where we could agree on the abstract notion. And then we we went through a second time to talk about exactly what we mean. But by the time we went through the second time, we agreed on so many abstract concepts that we didn't have a problem in the world doing the detailed stuff. So it, kind of, it, it solved itself. And then from there, I'll go and talk a little bit about how we broke that in the projects. We took a look at any, each of the important things that the people were talking about. We took a look at the behaviors. We had them talk about which the big behaviors were. And then we mapped which most important behaviors affected the most important things. At this point, I believe if I remember correctly, I realized that there was a receiving process they had at each location where a box would show up and they would check off the stuff and match it against the invoice. Or, and no matter what they did at that location, actually the receiving process was the same all over, even though we used like, I think 18 different backend systems. So the first project actually was to replace uh, the receiving process worldwide with a universal one with the gear and the gun and all that, and then have the, uh, the data player just hit all the underlying old systems and also hit the new system. So, yeah. So, through the process of defining the specific terms, you could, yeah, you could move up layers of abstraction to make sure that you understood the context that they existed in. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, had I asked each of them about how to do, if I had started with the idea that receiving was the goal and asked them detailed questions about receiving, we would probably still be arguing in that big room about <laughs> because everybody did it a different way. Right. And it, was, and it was actually the process of walking them through the generic version of that showing them that, hey, this information is actually used the same way no matter how you do it, that led to the agreement that said, hey, this is, could be the first yeah. thing we chop off and go do. And at that point, their, their job 
was to go back to their various business units and sell the idea that, hey, we all met and agreed and we're, we're going to yep. kick this out. That, I've had so many projects where either you can't see the user, you're forbidden to see the user. You know, we're going to yeah. make this and make the user use it whether they like it or not. It was really nice to have like real users. We, we've kind of moved from language and logic into architecture. We, and... we have, um, but note that we're what we're doing is we're using OO tools, mm-hmm. solid, all the rest of that, to reason about conceptual ideas. It's what Whitney Seen was so upset about, right? Right. And so we use abstraction, we use modeling, all that stuff to get agreement so that then we could begin programming, which is a formal system. So people always talk about functional programming versus OO programming as if there's a battle. There, there's not but there's thinking about solving problems in different ways. And my God, we have done so much progress in object-oriented programming that we can use that to think about conceptual ideas before we begin work. And I don't know why we don't do it more often. I see some of this as folks trying to be agile, right? And so essentially they throw out all upfront design until you actually get a story from a user or from a project manager or something like that. And yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely value to sitting down and saying, okay, what do we care about here before we actually start writing code? That's a that's a great point, and you have to be careful you don't conflate. In that last thing you said, you actually mentioned both the natural language side and the programming side. They're different, complete worlds, right? So I was yep. using the old programming methods to come to an agreement over language with real people. Mm-hmm. I was not mapping out how my database or system was. I'm not doing that old right. analysis to design to database stuff. Lots of fun, don't get me wrong, but it never worked for a lot of reasons. So in my opinion, at the human language side, we use our OO skills to clarify language amongst ourselves. And then once right. we move into doing a project, we move to behavior, which is the functional programming reasoning side. And, and then we have, back to what I was saying earlier about what's the test got to do? Once we move from let's bullshit each other about language, and I, I use that facetiously, to mm-hmm. let's write a, a code, we put on a coding hat. We're going to work in a formal system. And the only way you can work in a formal system is with a sort of double check entry system and with a clear testable goal you're shooting for. Right. Other, otherwise, you bring all your own natural language problems into the code you're writing. Right. So once you have a clear definition for what you're working with and what you care about, then you can come and you can actually build tests that say, this is how it's now defined. And then you can write the code that implements the behavior around what you have. Yeah, so I that think, it's, it matches up with, yeah, with the ideas that you've already agreed on. You, you would think so. And, and that and conceptually, that's how it works. And that's why people went down the model-driven uh, programming path. What actually happens is you use the O skills to come up with the tests in a common language you created in, in, uh-huh. in English, right? Right. And then you use the test to pull through the architecture of the formal system, all the variables and functions and classes uh-huh. you, you may need on a demand basis, whatever you need just to pass that test. Mm-hmm. And those words don't have to have anything to do with what you did with the people because that was people work to try to chop mm-hmm. off the solution, all that other stuff. This right. is So I'll say this a different way. Even if you can agree on language amongst these 20 people, even if you think you have a good idea what the hell you're doing and you're your only product owner, language is still full of holes and inconsistent. And yes. until, you, until you begin that formal system, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, but at the same time, I think we also kind of get stuck on this. Well, I want to write it once completely 100% correctly the first time. 
And the reality is, is that, yeah, in my experience, that's the other thing with software is that what you wind up doing is you wind up writing a good enough system, right? Or not even a good enough system. And then you get it checked by somebody who's either a stand-in for your user or who is actually your user. And then you refine it and you go through that process a handful of times, right? Oh, this report isn't quite what we wanted. Or this, uh, you know, this, this behavior is close, but you, you know, you didn't account for this, you know, and you may not have even discussed it, or maybe you did, but you know, you still didn't quite get the definition quite right because as you said, there are holes in natural language. And so now we're refining it down to the actual bits and pieces that we need because at the end of the day, we didn't realize we needed that level of specificity when we talked about it. Well, probably a better way of putting this is instead of refining, I think refining sort of implies that we're making the original language better. We're not. This is the importance of the behavior-driven development. This is the importance of ATDD workflow is that you don't have to take this idea of customer account that this guy in a room somewhere it had and take it to your code. You should, matter of right. fact, you should not because it's not a form. It is a conceptual idea. And like what Kinsey was telling us, it's never, ever going to work that way. Right. What you can do is you take this these guys in that room and make a behavior test out of it. And at that point, you have to pass the test and if you've passed the test, you've done by definition what they wanted. Now, they may have problems in their understanding of what it is or what and you, you should have more conversations about whatever. Right. But that should not go into your code. Your code should just be concerned with passing the behavior test it's given and then passing the unit and uh, TDD test as you create those. No, nothing else from outside the, uh, the you and the computer. Very cool. Well, this this is all coming out of a book that you're writing or have written. Have you finished the book at this point? Finish the book. It's up on uh, LeanPub. It's uh, leanpub.com slash info hyphen ops2. So leanpub.com slash info, I-N-F-O hyphen O-P-S-2. Awesome. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Well, uh, I'm going to start wrapping things up here. I'm just wondering, you know, usually at the end of the show, we shout out about things that we call picks. And so, yeah, are there any things that you're enjoying these days outside of the work code author life? that you want to let people know about? We just we just finished uh, watching the Omen trilogy and the Exorcist trilogy from the 70s. And that, that was that was a hoot of fun. Uh, you know, the, I've never the, seen any of those. You're kidding. Well, there's just there was this whole devil child thing in the 70s uh-huh. they did and they made a ton of money and then they just kind of beat the, the living daylights, daylights out of it. Uh, yeah, first the Exorcist was Devil Takes the Child mm-hmm. and they did, did that a bunch. And then Omen was Devil Becomes the Child. So it was, it was, it was fun. Yeah, it was different. I, w- I wanted to watch monster movies, but my significant other wanted to go for a flashback to the 70s. So we did, we did, <laughs> we did what she wanted to do. Nice. Very nice. I'm going to throw out some shout outs. So there's a book coming out that I'm pretty excited for. I, I'm a big fan of Brandon Sanderson and his next Stormlight Archives book is coming out soon. So yes. I'm excited about that. Terrific books. Yeah, I, I've actually been to Cosmere House because it's 15 minutes from here. Uh, oh wow! Yeah. I um I'm I've started the second uh, well I've started this set of books I finished the uh-huh. original uh, 
what the I've started the Way of Kings. Mistborn. Yeah, there's yeah, Mistborn, and my my friends and family have cajoled me. No, no, you gotta watch, read this other one. Yeah. And then the Bobster, I was talking about Stephen, Stephen Earl Donaldson uh, last week, and he was like, No, no, you've got to read the second thing that Stephen Earl Donaldson did, besides the uh, the Ring Bear trilogies. And so I've started up that as matter of fact, I've gotten about seven new books in the last week. Very nice. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, a friend of mine from high school works for him, helping manage his inventory of his fan junk that he sends out. That guy writes like a machine. It's it's oh a, yeah. So yeah. Do you listen? Do you listen on audiobooks or do you? Get I do. Part? I listen on Audible. So do you run the speed up faster than 1.0? Yes, it drives my wife insane. <laughs> oh my God, you're one of those. <laughs> How can you understand that? Yes, well, well I, can, I can go with ebook. I can go with Audible. But the, the devil will come take you if you're on that thing up past one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I usually listen to 2.25. Oh, my God. Wow. Cool. You go through fairly quickly. Then. Yes, I do. I, I go through books fairly quickly. I've also been listening to the Wheel of Time books. So, Well, you know, he finished up. He was the guy that wrote the last of that yeah. series. Yep. He my, was, wife, so. my wife read all of those. And that's, isn't each one of those like 800 pages or something? It's. Yeah, they're ridiculous, ridiculously long. The the when Brandon Sanderson finished them, he was supposed to write it all in one book, and he got all the material and he said, "There's just no way." I've heard that uh, Sanderson has some universal idea for his universe. Yes, such that all of those series are going to kind of come together and make some coherent sense or something. Yeah, not all of his books, but he's pretty explicit about which books are part of his Cosmere, is what he calls it. Yeah. Uh, Miss Bourne's part the, of that. Have you read the Stephen King Dark Tower series, which is uh -uh. similar? Nope, I haven't. I'm in, I'm gonna have to check that out too. Read the first two, and as my wife explains it, as the series progresses, it actually comes back to Stephen King writing the book about the series. Right. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Good deal. Well, I've got to jump off, but this has been a lot of fun. It's always good to talk to you, Daniel. Yeah, folks, go check out his book. It's on Lean Pub. We'll have a link in the show notes. Appreciate you uh, having me on. Man. Yeah, thanks for coming. All right, folks. Till next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.